there's some bad times. It's not all rosy, but uh, you know, people look at it and you say, wow, it's fantastic. You lived in so many different countries. You visited the world. How exotic, Mm -hmm. Uh, how exotic it would be to have, for me to have friends and family that I could rely on that I've known for 20 years. You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. You know, it feels like we're right at the end of this pandemic, and it feels really good that quarantine is somewhat over. At least here in Texas, we've been open for about two weeks or so, and, you know, life seems a little bit back to normal now. Even though we've been open, we've still been using Zoom. We really like this platform. And today we have David Christmas with us. And if you don't know David, David has had a very successful career in the oil and gas industry. He's spent over three decades working for Schlumberger around the world. He's moved to 10 different countries and held various positions from starting as a wireline field engineer all the way to being a managing director for the Permian Operations. In 2019, he made a significant change, and he left his comfort zone to become the CEO of Fluid Delivery Solutions in Midland, Texas. Hey, Dave. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? We got it good. right, David. Yeah, it's right. it's a tongue twister. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, let's dig right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What was childhood like? Okay. Well, I'm English, as most people can tell from my accent. Grew up in a place called Staffordshire, right in the center of the UK. Fantastic childhood when I look back on it. You only remember the good thing anyway, of course, but good childhood. Lived in the countryside. We lived in a, a small town and I was out in the countryside and nature all the time, hiking and walking and mountain climbing. Went through the scouting organization, the whole gamut in the UK, which I think was the first part that gave me a you know some self-confidence and some independence. Hitchhiked everywhere, all around Europe, loved to travel. So great times. Well, what made you get into the oil field? I mean, that seems kind of out of spectrum from, you know, being out outside in the UK. Yeah, I, well, I, my degree is in electrical and electronic engineering, and that was from the University of Liverpool. So Liverpool's you know, a hip place to be, lots of parties. It was great fun. Electrical engineering, I realized it was too sedate for me. I didn't want to design TVs for the rest of my life. I wanted to go travel and do something exciting. So I got a commission from the Royal Marines and, and then looked at other jobs for travel and Schlumberger came up and I figured I'd do that and hopefully get shot at less and have some fun and travel. I mean, that's the perfect place to be is if you want to travel the world and go into a wild ride, you're at the right place. <laughs> so uh, what was your first role when you started? Where did they ship you, I guess? So I flew to Dubai and signed my papers in Dubai. And then three days later, I found myself in Iraq. So I was based in Baghdad, Iraq. This was early 80s, right? So before all the stuff that went on with the the wars after that. How was that? Yeah. Look, Iraq is a beautiful country, great people. I really enjoyed it. And of course, you know, it was novel. I loved it. I was based in Iraq, trained in Kuwait. Great group of people there. Lots of fun. Do you have any crazy stories from being in Iraq? Well, yeah, I did get shot at, but that was just a guy. We were, there's actually a, a tool, a wireline tool called an induction tool that you have to 
calibrate by putting on a big cross and sticking up in the air. From a distance, it looks like a rocket launcher. And you know, some old fella thought that I was pointing a rocket launcher at some houses. Oh, that's and he started shooting at me. And so I'm, you know, I'm laughing and giggling. You know, he's trying to reload and all of his shells are going over the floor. And I'm giggling and my operators are saying, get in the truck. Mr. Dave, this is not funny. You're like, oh, but yeah. I'm just calibrating my tool. Absolutely. Right? That's what I thought. Oh, yeah. so. <laughs> so I know you stayed in the Middle East for quite a bit and you were dating the lady who is your wife till this day. And how did you make that work? Because I mean, back then, not to date you, but you know, there was no FaceTime and Skype and emails and texting. How did you make that work? Because I mean, I wouldn't have been able to make that work. I tell you, it was, it was tough, but we didn't know any better. So we wrote each other long, long letters. I mean, pages and pages. And you'd send them and you'd get them two weeks later. So you'd always, we'd have this communication. I still got the letters. She still got her letters from me. And they're a little bit soppy, you know, love letters. But they're also boring. Oh, I did this today. I got up at three in the morning and I went to this well site and it was raining. So we did that. We had a lot of time. We did try and get in touch on, on telephones. But the way you do that is you dial the old dial phone. And then it's engaged. So you hang up and you dial again. So it was almost, you know, you don't even think of the number. You just dial hours on end. So <laughs> That's how you, so the, oh yeah, so the, the sound was a sentence? No, no. Old phones used to dial. It would go, and the number would come back. And then you'd listen. It would go, did, 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 which means line busy. Okay, uh... That had to have been difficult. I know that you mentioned a story of writing her and y'all having to meet. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? With okay, no Google one, Maps. No, no, Google, no Maps. Google Maps. Okay. Yeah. So this one I thought was quite comical, but it's probably not comical to her. So I wrote her a letter from Iraq saying, hey, look, you know, would you meet me in Sri Lanka? Which was very exotic because I figured I was going to get my days off in Sri Lanka. So she wrote back two weeks later saying, yes, I will. I said, well, here's a ticket. Meet me in this hotel at 7 o'clock on this day. So I thought that was very cool, right? And of course, I got to the hotel at that time. What she'd done in the UK is said, this is an expensive ticket. I can get a cheaper one if I fly two hours later. Well, I obviously waited an hour and 55 minutes in the hotel and not the two hours. So I left and said, okay, I'm done. So she spent three days chasing me around Sri Lanka as I oh was my. getting the suntan and enjoying myself. She was about <laughs> 20 through the jungle. But we made it through. If we can make it through that, we make it through anything. That's amazing. I would like to learn more about what it was like being a field engineer at that time, especially when you were traveling in such a remote area. Well, you know, one of the things that intrigued me about the Royal Marines was the elite team, the special group that you were, something that nobody else could be. And it was exciting. That's what it felt like being a wildland engineer. Schlumberger in the early 80s was significantly smaller than it is today. And it felt it felt like you were special. You were elite. You had a lot of responsibility. This expensive truck, all the tools, you know, a crew of people around you that you were responsible for. And you were on your own. So you were remote, independent. So you felt the pressure. You've got to get the job done. Nobody needs to get hurt. But you couldn't pick a phone up and call somebody. So it was a challenge in terms of the work. Now, the staff house lifestyle was great. You know, you with, you know, same age people, we're all having fun, we're all remote. The expat lifestyle in general is astounding. You know, people stick together and, and realize we're all in it together. So that was, that was a lot of fun. 
And then we spent most of our time talking about what we're going to do on our days off. Are we going to go fly? Are we going to go to Sri Lanka? So, yeah, and that good. hasn't changed. I think people in the yeah. oil field are always like, oh, my days off with all this money Who's that I've made. Me? I want to do this and that. And I'm yeah. assuming even back then, it was definitely a good salary compared to other industries, right? Absolutely. And those days, it was a good salary and you had no costs because overseas, the house was paid, the food was paid. Mm-hmm. So it was good. Nice. But you left that good life once. How many years into it was it? Were you like a senior field engineer when you left? or? Yeah, I was, a, I was a general field engineer, GFE. Actually, I was an engineer in charge of a couple of facilities in West Africa. And it was about five years in. So I'd gone through all the training, was at the first level of management, was enjoying it. it was putting a, We had a rotation schedule that didn't actually work in reality compared to what it was supposed to be on paper. My fiance at the time came out. And when she got on the plane to go back, I said, okay, I'm on the next one. I'm going, I'm going home. So that's uh, what I did. Yeah. So you went home to be with your wife. I went home to be with my wife. <laughs> I love that. Six months. This is fantastic. I got all this money. I bought cars. I learned to fly. I went skiing half a dozen times. And then I said, this, you know, grow up. Yeah. What's next? (laughs) Gotta get a job. What's next? And so what was next? I joined a company called Red Earth Pump that had an agent called LaSalle. And we ended up, eventually I left Red Earth, went across to another company, got headhunted, got headhunted back by LaSalle. And each of these companies got bought by Schlumberger. You can't escape. I cannot escape. Yeah. Wow. So you made your way back into Slumberger. And then I know throughout the 30 plus years that you had, you've moved around the world, like we said, almost 10 times. I read that you went from the UK to Houston to Dubai to Moscow and then Newfoundland. First of all, that's all over the place. How do you manage such changes? And not only you, but how do you as your family manage it? So... Oh, first of all, you've got to have the right team around you. And my family, okay, so I would like to say that my family was very supportive and loved breaking up with all their friends and changing schools and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. It's not true. Mm-hmm. But I kid myself that, look, you have to balance the experiences of seeing these different cultures in these different countries with the bad part, which is, you know, getting your belongings broken or lost in shipment and then having to go to a new school mid-year and mm-hmm. Or my, my wife having to, she closed her business to travel with me. So those are the, there's some bad times. It's not all rosy, but, yeah. uh, you know, people look at it and you say, wow, it's fantastic. You lived in so many different countries. You visited the world. How exotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, how exotic it would be to have, for me, to have friends and family that I could rely on that I've known for 20 years. There's a difference. There's a balance. Mm-hmm. We chose it. It's a lifestyle and we've enjoyed it and we've, got, we've done well out of it and wouldn't change it. Did Schlumberger ever have any hard feelings, you leaving and coming back through the companies that they bought? Was there ever any sort of, like, did you ever get any comments on that or was it just business as usual? Oh, yeah. They were all in tears when I left, of course. <laughs> uh, look, big organizations, no one's indispensable. It's a machine. It can run through. Great job of training people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they may do without, and I'm sure, I believe they welcomed me back in. So it was good. <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard a lot of stories like yours where a lot of people leave, come back, leave for another company, gets bought out, and every, you know, it, like you said, it's a big machine and it works mm-hmm. no matter what. So yeah, yeah. And what you're thirty. 
sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. In your 30 plus years at Slumberger, what would you say was your favorite position or your most, most fulfilled position, I guess, that you really enjoyed? Well, I mean, I tell you, the place I liked the most was Dubai for a number of reasons. We lived 200 yards from the beach and I'm a scuba diver and instructor. So I love that part. I also like the fact that the weekend felt at a different time to the US. So all my bosses in the US wouldn't call me on <laughs> my weekend. So, so it, was, it was cool. And, but the, culturally, it was interesting because I looked after the Middle East and Asia for one of the product lines, Artificial Lift. So got to see a lot of different places, lots, lots of different countries. So it was, that was really good. I like that. I'm going to say, I live in Midland, and I'm going to say the Permian was a complete shock. Moving from Newfoundland, where I was looking at offshore business, high-tier, high-tech, yeah, tremendous market share, very profitable, to the Permian in 2015 during that last downturn. That was a challenge. Yeah. But, boy, what great people... What a fast-moving, competitive business here. Mm -hmm. So lots of things to learn. Sad times, but we turned it around. And now and, it looks like we're going through the same thing. Yeah, and I think what, what's cool about it is you kind of moved around the world. You're from the UK, but you're choosing you know, to kind of like, I feel like you're making Midland home now, right? I'm making the US home now. My <laughs> kids are both here. My son's a US citizen. He's 32. My daughter lives in Dallas. She's 29. So, I mean, we, yeah, this, this is, is home, home for you. Yeah. Awesome. Would you say throughout your career that there was a role model that you looked up to or somebody that inspired you? And this could be within the company or outside. It could have been, you know, Steve Jobs or internally. You know, that's a funny question because lots of people say that and they come up with, you know, Mahatma Gandhi or something like that. So I, I want to be something a bit more practical, a bit more local. I think you can have most people have a role model characteristic that you could aspire to be like and learn from. And that's key to be listening and learning. Maybe one person that I would, I would say, let me pick my last boss in Schlumberger, Stephanie Cox. And, oh, yeah, definitely. And you, you know her. I think she's been on podcast or she should be. She's, she, she's, she's coming uh, on, but we've heard mm -hmm. okay. really great things about her. Yes. So I, here's what I learned from her. She listened. When she spoke to you, you felt there was nobody else in the world and that conversation was direct. She actively listened. That was a, a role model characteristic I want to follow. She cared about a team. She led the team, was forceful when needed and delicate when needed. She for the team and defended them and she was connected within the organization. So you could ask, what do you think about this? And she'd show you how to connect. So you know, I thought she was a fantastic role model, but there's been plenty of other role models that I've seen around. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, we've heard so much about her. That's why we're very excited to talk with her as well. I know she's been extremely supportive in the organization and outside. When it comes to your role model in like a managing style, how did you manage to align the people with the vision that you had and help them also achieve their goals? Especially since you were moving around a lot, I'm sure that you were jumping in and out of some of those positions just because of your promotions. Yeah. Well, look, I think any leader... And leader can be at all different levels. But if you're going to be a leader, you need to start by, first of all, you, I'm not the smartest person in the room and you should not be the smartest person in the room. Your team has better ideas, different perspectives. So you should always start by, by listening. My approach is collaborative and communicative and peppered with humor. You know, it's, it's just a job. You know, you can have fun, but when you work hard, 
But I, I think you need to encourage as a leader people to collaborate and communicate. Don't accept people setting off in little teams. If you don't communicate as a leader, then you're, you're an individual. You're not, you're not leading a team. So I think you should do that. You should do it by setting an example and providing appropriate, you know, exemplary traits. I think a leader needs to make decisions. There's nothing worse than a leader or a position in person in a leadership role that doesn't actually make a decision and mm-hmm. expects the team just to figure it out. You need to get everybody together, rowing in the same boat, in the same direction. So take, make decisions and, and lead. Yeah, no, I, I like that. And I think like what you mean with communication, a lot of teams communicate better when they feel that they, there is trust and comfort and being able to open up to you, you know, and... Absolutely. You got it. I mean, I think you have to have transparency. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, in a company like Schlumberger, you're bounced around so many times, you were put in a position and you just, you assumed when somebody came in that they were going to be competent, ethical, honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you, you start off with all of these good traits. And so to me, you have to keep them. You have to be honest, communicative, transparent, live by your word, all these types of things. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't take much to lose respect. Well, if the company also has developed a culture that is around those values and you know, like you said, when the manager changes, you're like, you don't have to expect something completely different because you do realize that the culture is pretty much identical. So you kind of can expect what kind of managing style you might get, which I think that really helps in such a large organization. Yes. And it's also interesting when you turn it to a smaller organization. So I retired in August of last year joined Fluid Delivery Solutions as CEO. And, and one of the things that I, that I liked about the new company, I mean, we're a company that provides a move water, but one of the things I liked is that people were communicative and open. And so I wanted to make sure that we carried on with that, you know, those sort of traits about the business, that we're communicative, transparent, look out for each other and these types of things. It's tough with the you know, market conditions we've got right now. Yeah. Because, you know, the whole industry has lost a lot of people and that's never a, a pleasant thing. Um, mm-hmm. But if you can do it with some level of compassion and you can, you can do it and, and explain what's going on, I hope people understand the situation and as a business, we'll come out stronger the other side of this craziness. Yeah. And uh, actually speaking on that subject of when you retired and moved on to this first role after 30 something years, something completely different. That must've been, scary, challenging, excitement. I'm assuming all sorts of emotions, but tell us a little bit of kind of like what went through that day when it was your last day. How did you feel? And then also, has it been harder or easier than you thought to manage a smaller company and a privately held company versus, you know, an independent? Yeah, we are private equity backed. So, you know, good financial backing company called Mm -hmm. Triantic up in New York. So yeah, the last day... It's a bereavement. I mean, I made the, you know, I have loads of, loads of friends in Schlumberger. I still got lots of friends in Schlumberger. And I know Schlumberger is changing, but, you know, I still got lots of friends around the world. So it was a bereavement. And I felt guilty that I was leaving them behind and moving on to something that I thought was better. I needed a different challenge. We said earlier that, that the U.S. is our home. So I wanted to stay in the U.S. I've been five years in the permit. It was time to do something else. 35 years time to do something else. I wanted an intellectual challenge. So I joined FDS with a view of, you know, working as a CEO. So, you know, being able to make quicker decisions, leading a team, taking the things I learned and helping other people to have successful careers. I wanted to work 
more with the private equity company. So we had the financial backing behind that. Mm-hmm. But I also decided to go to Neely School of Business in, in Fort Worth for TCU and, and do an MBA with energy. So try to you know, rejuvenate some intellectual capacity here and get something formalized. So putting all those together was an exciting time. Was it hard? Is it harder? Yes, it's hard. It's different because you don't have access to all the data or all of the thousands of competent people. But what you can do is make a decision like in five minutes and get after it. And then you're going to make a decision. So yeah, it's fun. So David, I know that throughout your 30 plus years, you've been involved a lot with diversity and inclusion through several of your roles. Can you tell us a little bit more on why the industry needs more of this? And are we even in a good place right now? Ooh, it's, so that's a big topic. And, you know, you got to start off by saying I may not be best qualified, but I've got a lot of opinions and a lot of experience. So I, and I think I've got a desire to do better. So diversity and inclusion, I know, I mean, nowadays we're all talking about gender diversity, but back when I started with Schlumberger, it was nationality diversity also. Mm-hmm. And we ran through that for, a, you know, a couple of decades and then, I, you know, Somebody said, oh, hang on a second. It's not just about making sure we have, a, you know, we work in 85 countries and have all those representation from those nationalities. What about the female portion? That's 50% of the global talent. And we were not doing enough, you know. So I, it just feels right to me that that is appropriate. You've got to get, if you're going to run a business, you need to have the best people you possibly can. And 50% of the people in the world are female. And why don't we have 50% in every business? So on that topic, when I remember Jay, it was around 2013, 2014 timeframe, I was in the BITS organization and there was a huge push to get more women involvement. I was the only woman in the sales at the time. How do you make it to where it doesn't seem like they're only hiring that person because it's a woman versus she has all the capabilities to be hired? I mean, that was the biggest thing that I was up against during this time. Was, and I felt like I was constantly having to prove myself. So how would you do that as a manager of trying to depict how to go about that? Jamie, that's a great question. And that's, a, that's the real challenge because there is a group of people that are going to say, oh, you only hired the woman because she's a woman, which mm-hmm. is put her on the woman. And it's more a reflection on the group of people that say that. So I think as a leader, you have to, I hope I promoted gender diversity. Actually, gender equality is what I, I really think we should do, not just be diverse. And not accept people saying that person not for the wrong reason, but also not accept that when you have a role to fill, that all the resumes that come in male only. So how can that be? Mm-hmm. I think it's a challenge, and I think it's a cultural thing that will take a long time to to. Think we're on the way. I don't think we're there yet. I think you've got to be intentional about it as a leader, and almost out in front of people to to. I think you do a disservice to females if you take them and put them in a role when they were not qualified just because they're a female. And I I hope I've never done that. I've never done that intentionally. But I think you also do a disservice to the company if you don't outwardly say you need to start promoting little p, the inclusion of females so we have equality. 50% of the talent in the world is female. Mm Mm-hmm recognize it and do something about it and be intentional. That's the way I'm thinking anyway. 
Was there anything that you did in particular that you think stood out against your team that made it more successful with, for you on how to choose them, the right qualified candidate? I don't know. I, I think I publicly asked women how we could make it better. And that's trying, one, because I wanted to know what, what were we as a company not doing well? What could we, of course, it's the physiological differences. You know, are the coveralls appropriate? Are the gloves the right size? Let's go do something positive about it just as, rather than just assuming. You know, so I publicly asked women, how can we make it better and make it easier for you to work within the company? And how do we make it more attractive as a company for, for women to, to join? You know, you can almost look internally and say, well, if we've only got 20% females, is that a reflection on our inability to make the work environment attractive, initially attractive, and then are we making it difficult to retain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I, and I think that's key here is you asked. I think a lot of times many organizations just assume, oh, they want this, employees want this, this is, you know, and it's like, just ask and we will tell you. And the solutions are a lot different than what sometimes we think. And we actually spoke to Joanna about this, where she, she mentioned a lot of times managers or leaders think that they know what's best for the employee. Mm-hmm. Say, this is going to be a great job for you, this transfer. But no, like you didn't ask, like you need to understand the people and also ask. And I think that's where the key is, is just asking. Because I think a lot of women would say, yeah, actually, you know what would make me stay here longer is this, 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 and this. This would make my life easier. You know, things like that. But and a lot of things are possible. So why don't we just ask and do it? Mm-hmm. I honestly believe that if you get a team that's made up of male and female, you get, you're going to get stereotypical masculine and feminine attributes. I mean, you know, the assertiveness, the competitiveness, the physical strength, so we can make tools heavier and move them in shorter and, you know, runs and this type of thing. Yeah. That's one side of it. But look at all the advantages you get from the female side. You get the caring both people and equipment, the ability to build teams better. I want in my team, I want both of those. Mm -hmm. I want, you know, people that are strong, tenacious, intelligent. And then I want some men as well. Yeah, I think women bring the empathy part to the business as well. So the feeling that they think more ahead of what, like maybe what the client act, like listening to what they actually want versus trying to tell them what you think they need, which I feel like some strong personalities might do and not listen as well. So I think bringing the female component to it really helps open more, more ideas. More of that motherlyhood, you know, feeling, you know, mm-hmm. which is what I've heard supposedly is a character trait that is seen a lot amongst women leaders or within the organizations. They do bring more of that, you know, like, friendly, loving, characteristic, you know? Yeah, but the way you say it, my perception is you're saying it as if that's a negative, and I don't think that's a negative because if you're sitting there with a client and it's male versus male, hormonally there's some type of conflict going on. One wants to beat the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> male versus, with a, not versus, but with a female in there, it'll be feeding back, bouncing back. Did I hear you right? Do I understand this? What are your real motivations? Yeah. Man, the conversation is so much better. So that's client and you know, company person. But it works the same in a, in a boardroom, in a conference room, where if everybody gets the opportunity to talk, which is something you shouldn't you know, 
ensure happens, then you get a much broader, deeper, more richer conversation and you get all the perspectives that are out there. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. this topic is definitely, you know, uh, controversial at times and it's, but you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast is we just need to have those conversations because we're not going to change and evolve and get better if we're all too scared to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, Right. But you, well, I started off to the answer to your first question was, that, you know, I have to be careful because I'm not really qualified because I'm male, not female. So, you know, I, we, want, I, we want everybody's perspective, you know? Yes. Dave, thank you so much. We really appreciate the time that you've given us. Amazing story. Like, I wish I could like, you know, have followed you around for 30 years and see all the amazing things that you've done and just the knowledge, success and we're really happy to see you now as CEO 